tonight's scripture is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, What should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich toward God. The word of the Lord. Even before the Revolutionary War ended, Thomas Jefferson was already calling America the Empire of Liberty, which he believed would survive and flourish by virtue of the freedom of her citizens. And that virtue and freedom are the most fully realized when someone buys a little property and works hard on the land. He said, those who labor in the earth are the chosen people. He wrote in his notes on the state of Virginia in 1781, in order for this strength through property ownership to work, we could see that we were going to need more land. Jefferson thought it was imperative to expend the liberty all the way across the continent, providing plenty of plots in which to root virtue and freedom. We shall form to the American Union a barrier against the dangerous extension of the British province of Canada and add to the empire of liberty an extension and a fertile country, thereby converting dangerous enemies into valuable friends. Well, we never succeeded in adding Canada to the empire And they didn't really turn out to be as dangerous as they once looked. But we did manage to spread our liberty all around everybody. Spread our liberty by buying France out of of our continent. And to bring our liberty to a pretty good chunk of Mexico by attacking them until they gave it up. And all the while the empire was liberating native peoples from their lands and their lives. And black slaves from their homes and their freedom. Like the Lord, our liberty moves in mysterious ways. Always it would seem with the hand of that divine beckoning us forward, the more driving justification was made 
and had been best articulated by the newspaper columnist John O'Sullivan, who urged much later the President James K. Polk to move south and to move west and north, claiming it was necessary to establish on earth the moral dignity and the salvation of man. Working off Jefferson's original ideas and the persistent threat of American exceptionalism, O'Sullivan pulled it all together in a supposition he called manifest destiny. Now, there was never really a set of principles defining manifest destiny. Therefore, it was always a general idea rather than a specific policy made with some motto or concepts. It was ill-defined but keenly felt. Nobody knew exactly what it meant, but it felt true to them. Manifest destiny was an expression of conviction in the morality and value of the exceptionalism that complemented other people's ideas, included all of them. This era of American exceptionalism or romantic nationalism spoke to Andrew Jackson, who wrote that we need to extend our area of freedom, typified by the conflation of America's potential greatness the nation's budding sense of our own romantic identity. We must expand. Yet Jackson would not be the only president to elaborate on the principles underlying manifest destiny. You know, for far too long, the Mexican-American border has been porous. People have been crossing it at will. Young men come in gangs to find work and to make a permanent life here. Whole families cross into our country illegally with every intention of making a new life for themselves and to never leave Texas. This was a popular sentiment. Similar statements could be heard on the streets and read in the newspapers in the 1830s and 1840s in every Mexican city and town. Some Mexican scholars and political leaders argued that the immigrants from the United States were needed to work the farms and the ranches in the sparsely populated areas of the northern western Texas, Nuevo Mexico and Alta California. Mexico gained its independence from Spain in 1824. After the long and costly war, the army was depleted and the government was in debt. The Mexican government began a limited policy of allowing a number of Mexicans to migrate to the arid regions of Texas. But before long, the word got around that the land was hard and the work was even harder. So these US immigrants began to settle in the eastern part of Texas, near to the US state of Louisiana, where the soil was rich, the water was more plentiful, and they could trade with Louisiana. The quotas quickly became overran, and despite everything Mexico did to control the border, the Americans continued to flood in. Finally, in an attempt to regain control of the border, Mexico banned all immigration from the United States. The American ban, however, seemed to have little effect. Some Mexican intellectuals argued that it was immoral to keep the Americans out of Texas. 
that they were only crossing the border in search of a better life. But most public sentiment was with the government. And the Mexican president used this issue to arouse patriotism in the newly independent country and solidify his power. The Mexican government demanded that the United States do something to keep its citizens from illegally crossing the border. But when the United States seemed to do nothing, the president imposed steep tariffs on all the goods coming in from the United States. In 1834, Santa Ana abandoned the fledgling democratic system in Mexico and assumed dictatorial powers. He sent the army into Texas to demand Americans leave Mexico. They refused, which led to the great battle for the Alamo. Alamo, which most people do remember. They remember the Alamo, but maybe not exactly correctly, because it wasn't a brave patriot, uh, wasn't brave, brave patriot Americans fighting and sacrificing for God and country. It was a bunch of illegal aliens mounting an armed rebellion and declaring a sovereign nation inside the borders of Mexico. This led President James K. Polk, who had offered to buy Texas and New Mexico and California from Mexico and was turned down, led him to offer to annex the self-declared Republic of Texas, and they accepted. Then the United States declared Texas the 28th state and then declared war on Mexico. While there were dissenting voices, the war against Mexico was popular. It was popular and it fed into the narrative of America's manifest destiny. With no less than Walt Whitman penning, penning a poem in support of the war against Mexico. So when we find ourselves 150 years later with an increasingly autocratic president using the porous Mexican-American border to increase his popularity, where migrants are vilified to whip people into a dark patriotism, we need to understand that there is a context. There is an undeniable irony, but not in a fun way. And when a 19-year-old kid from Dallas goes to, El, to an El Paso Walmart and shoots 46 people, murders 20 of them, first posting an anti-immigrant manifesto claiming the Hispanic invasion as his motivation and decrying the his, that his, the Hispanics will take control of the local and state government of his beloved Texas, we need to understand there's some context, context for this hate. And it doesn't come out of nowhere. This is a tragedy. And something, as we all can see, is really, really broken. Has been really broken for a long time. It's clear that these tragic murders have as much to do with mental, the mental health crisis and the gun crisis. But those are both like ingredients in something much darker. Something much darker that is the impulse for more or mine or my people or for my God-given right 
to have what's yours, a kind of greed or a grabbing, which cannot just be about stuff or goods or property line or gold or soil, but has to be more about some kind of twisted, deep-in-the-soil desire for power and shame and guilt and pain, which is nurtured into hate and violence. These violent mass gun murders, they do not come out of nowhere. They are the result of a grassroots movement. They are the result of people being ignored, not noticed, denied, shamed, abused over time, over hundreds of years. I mean, when I speak about these things and try and name the ingredients that go into these kinds of tragedies, I don't really know what I'm talking about. I'm doing it with sort of a, uh, like a sad stab at an explanation. But I know that there's something deep, something deep that produces a kind of hatred that we see from the White House down to the Walmart, It's something that you can't really solve, you know, when you, by liking something. We're not going to, we're not going to change the course of war and violence on our own. We need a grassroots movement. We need to go out and find, find somebody that you hate. Find somebody that you hate and get to know them until you love them. And if you can't think of anybody you hate, find somebody you don't like. And stay with them until you love them. Which is going to be hard because they probably don't like you either. And it doesn't matter if they do, because this is not about you transforming them. This is about letting the radical mercy of God transform you. We can do a little, each of us, because who knows what's going to be needed in 150 years from now. or if we'll get an opportunity to find out. It is hard to love in the face of hatred. It's hard to love when things feel hopeless. But we can come together here and maybe get a little something that'll bring us back out in the world to give it a try.